Welcome to another WeaverCast. My name is Shelby Skirhawk, and we are here today to talk about tax reform. And it's a hot topic with seemingly never-ending changes. On today's podcast, we get insight from Weaver's Rob Myatt. Rob has worked in tax planning and compliance for more than 12 years, and he's currently the partner in charge of Weaver's energy practice. So we're going to focus on tax reform impacts within the energy industry. Rob, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Rob, the tax reform bill was passed a little more than a year ago, but it seems like reform attempts have been going on for a while. Yeah, that's it's been something that's going on for pretty much the last four to five years. It actually, a lot of this spurred from a bill that was brought up, the Brady bill that was brought up, brought up four or five years ago, and really got a lot of, of steam during the, the 2016 election. So, a lot of the um, a lot of the framework was laid laid out during the election, and it pa- it passed in late 2017. And so, really, if you look at the at the the reform, it is a true tax cut, but it depends. It's kind of a trick question. It depends on who you ask. It depends on who you are. It depends on your own personal tax situation. So, is it good or bad? Um, for the most part, it's good, it, but it is keyed at high net worth individuals. Um, it didn't do a ton to benefit the energy industry, but it didn't do a ton to hurt, it didn't do anything to, to hurt the energy industry at all. So it depends on your personal situation. It depends on what type of investment you have. So for example, if you're invested in minerals instead of uh, working interest, minerals didn't get a good result or a good answer because they're not eligible for, for the new tax deduction, the 199A. But on the upstream side, you know, it depends on what your, your um, your business plan is. If you're holding and develop properties and you're not entering into a drilling program, then you could be eligible for that deduction if you're profitable. But the whole nature of of the energy industry is typically you have tax losses until you sell and you have capital gains when you sell the company Mm -hmm. or the assets. And that's not a good answer for the 199A deduction. So the answer, it depends, but it didn't make things worse but it didn't make things significantly better like it did for a lot of others in other industries. So specifically, we're talking about individuals versus corporations. Yep. What are the differences there? And I guess what is the the benefit for, um, or I guess the advantage for the tax cut for individuals versus those corporations? Sure. Yeah. So individuals, you know, the, the rate prior to this was the top rate was 39.6%. That was lowered to 37%. Mm-hmm. And what the, the, the bill did is they essentially tried to provide a competitive landscape for businesses as well. And so if you look at the corporate side, what they did is they, prior to the, to the reform, the top tax rate was 35%, which was one of the largest in, in the industrialized world. Mm-hmm. Problem, right? So they dropped that from 35 to 21%, huge tax cut. So a lot of people, you know, instantly got intrigued with this corporate rate you had to kind of put things on pause and say, okay, well, let's look at the, the new 199A deduction. And so that the 199A was targeted at partnerships. And what that did is that allowed partnerships to flow through income to individuals, and they actually receive a 20% deduction of income, mm-hmm. which results in an effective rate for partnership flow through income at about 29.6%. So not as low as the corporate rate, mm-hmm. um, but still a good tax cut from 39.6 to 29.6. I'd like to talk about that in more detail, but um, essentially 
lower lower tax on comp- on corporations and partnerships, lower tax on individuals. But again, the answer probably depends because there was a lot of uh, give and take. You can't just cut taxes across the board without changing a few things right. on on the other side. So um, you know, one, a couple of things non energy, but just for example, on the individual side, you know, they removed exemptions, and so now you can't you can't take a personal exemption for your dependents. They capped property taxes at ten thousand dollars. They removed the two percent itemized deductions. And so on the individual side, gotten a lot of questions as to, you know, is it good or bad? What did it do for me? And I say, well, let me see your tax information first because right. I can't really tell without knowing how many kids you have, what type of businesses you're in, what tax bracket you're in. So for the most part, if you look at anyone above $400,000 of income, it's a tax cut. Anybody between zero and four hundred thousand, you're probably plus or minus maybe a few thousand dollars, just depending on your situation. Four hundred thousand household or of, of AGI. So okay. yeah, combined total total household income. Gotcha, Correct. gotcha. So uh, you, I think you alluded to the pass through tax deduction. Sure. Uh, and that's to clarify, so that is for individuals, and that's to kind of make up for some of those exemptions that were removed. Correct. So ultimately, it will affect the individual and it's calculated at the individual level, but it is a partnership deduction. So the whole concept of a corporation versus a partnership is a corporation is a standalone taxable entity. It's taxed at 21% at the corporate level. The corporation pays the tax. A partnership calculates taxable income. It flows through that income to the partners. And then those partners, those taxpayers pay the tax on that income. Mm-hmm. So this the 199A basically said, well, we want to equalize the rate or get it close to corporate the corporate rate to be competitive. We don't want to give a special advantage to large corporations. Most of the large operators in the oil and gas space operate in the C corp, but if you in the C corp structure, mm-hmm. but if you look at probably 90% of what's out there in energy, it's in the partnership structure. Okay. And so the 199A, essentially what it does is if your share of income from a partnership is a million bucks, it would flow through to you, and then you would get to take 20% of the million as a deduction. So you actually only pay tax on the 800000 of income. Mm-hmm. So effectively, the rate ends up about 29.6. Sounds like a win, but hold on a second. There's a lot of caveats to, to the calculation. One of them is you have to be profitable. Mm -hmm. And so that's a problem for for a lot of energy companies who are very profitable. But from a tax perspective, you have other special deductions, IDC, accelerated depreciation, depletion, that often put these upstream and midstream taxpayers in a loss position until they sell their assets. So if you have a loss, you can't take the, the 20% tax deduction yeah. on a loss. It's only income. Mm-hmm. So that that's a problem for the space because essentially you, you may not be able to take that deduction until you sell the company. And when you sell the company, you may have some opportunity there to take the 199A. Right. Another issue with the 199A for the oil and gas industry is it, it's not allowed on mineral income, and that's royalty income. So if you have a, a mineral or a royalty interest, that income is excluded. Um, also, capital gains are excluded from the calculation. So the 199A, the deduction, is really based on true ordinary trader business income, which I find it odd that they're, they've included real estate, but they have excluded royalties, which are very similar in nature to right. rents. 
um, and they have excluded capital gains because capital gains already have a lower 15 to 20% tax rate. So the 199A is great, um, great for the tax reform bill, not so advantageous to oil and gas companies. Unless your business model is you're acquiring profitable assets, you're not doing a lot of drilling, mm-hmm. and you do have a taxable profit every year. So that's one thing. Another thing is is the the requirement that you stimulate employment or capital in the company. So there is a cap, try not to get too technical here, but sure. the deduction is limited to 50% of wages that the company pays. And so for example, let's go back to that a million dollar example, million dollars of income, your initial deduction is 200,000, mm-hmm. you pay tax on the 800,000. So if your distributive share of wages, not your individually, but your your distributable share of company wages is four hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars on that same investment, you would take fifty percent of the four hundred thousand. That's two hundred. You compare that to the two hundred thousand dollar deduction. You can take the full amount. Okay. Okay. So you're good. Let's go back to that same example. A million dollars of income, two two hundred thousand dollar deduction. Let's say your distributive share of wages is a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. You take. Fifty percent of that, a hundred thousand. So you compare the fifty thousand to the two hundred thousand. You're now actually capped at fifty thousand. You can't take the full two hundred thousand. Okay. So that's a problem um, for for a lot of energy companies because because of liability reasons. A lot of energy companies don't have their wages in the same structure as they do their profit, uh-huh. and so that can become an issue because those wages have to be in the same ownership chain as your your operations. And so a lot of energy companies will have an operator uh, employer yeah. on the side that is owned by another individual, or maybe it, there's some separate ownership to that, mm-hmm. that maybe those wages don't flow up to your investors and you don't get that deduction. Okay. So my recommendation is if you want to have the opportunity to take this deduction to make sure your wages are housed in the same ownership stream as your as your income. Um, that's one thing. Num- number two is is capital. I mentioned two things, wages and capital, because we're not giving tax deductions. The government says we're not giving it for free. We're giving it to spur employment and investment. Mm -hmm. And so the capital piece, the limitation is either 50% of wages or 2% of your capital expenditures. And so it's the greater of the two. Okay. And so if you look at capital expenditures in the energy space, you have, if you're upstream, you have heavy IDC, you have a heavy leasehold cost, and you have a very smaller component, which is tangible equipment, so the actual well equipment itself. Okay. The only thing that the IRS included in the in the base of capital expenditures is that tangible inqu- equipment. They did not include leasehold cost or IDC. So your capital expenditure limitation, most likely 99% of oil and gas upstream taxpayers aren't going to be able to take advantage of that. On the midstream side, they will because on the midstream side, it's all capital, tangible, depreciable property. You're building these huge pipelines, right. and so they they can include that in their base. But for upstream, uh, upstream oil and gas companies, it's probably not going to be there for them. You mentioned that uh, minerals were not included. I mean, at the at the very highest level, then why would they distinguish? Uh, minerals is a different different sure. category and exclusion. Yeah, so minerals by nature are considered portfolio income regardless of if you are if it's an active business for you. Um, the IRS is very very stingy about 
classifying mineral or royalty income as trader business income. Mm -hmm. You actually have to be either classified as a trader dealer, which would require constantly not only buying, but selling minerals on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, right? And then you could classify that as ordinary trader business income. Very rare, not many people do it. And then on, if you can't classify yourself as a trader dealer, you have to actually um, get a ruling from the IRS to say that it's ordinary. Nobody wants to do that. That's a painful process. And so royalty interest is considered investment income, exempt. It's not considered an ordinary trader business, which is what the, is the intent of the bills is we're giving tax deductions on ordinary trader business income. And you had said that royalties are kind of similar to, I mean, it should be because it's kind of similar to a rent structure almost. Yeah. So rents, uh, rental income has a lot of similarities to royalties because it is, in, it is investment type income in nature. Um, and so that was kind of the, the questions that we've struggled with is, why are royalties not excluded and rent, rents aren't, right? And a lot of the rental income you see is, is you know, put together by private equity groups and you have silent limited partners that you're buying a building, you know, you're renting that building, they're not doing any work on that building. Mm-hmm. And so kind of the same concept with, with royalties, but who really kind of um, uh, suffers from the, the royalty laws are the royalty funds funds that are really active trader businesses that they're actively pursuing royalty interest and right. that's what they're doing as as a business. So with the 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 tax rates about you know twenty one percent versus thirty five percent for the for the oil and gas companies that aren't corporations. I mean, it does seem like that would incentivize them to to corporate. Like what? Well, I guess what's your advice and what's some of the thought process behind that? Sure, I got a thousand calls about this right after the bill passed. And I had one large client who has operated in the partnership structure for 20 plus years. And he calls and is adamant that he wants to switch to the corporate structure. And I had to talk him off the ledge. And it's it's just not a normal uh, structure in our space, except for large operators. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why, some of the reasons why you would be hesitant to switch is on the surface, it looks like it's 21% versus 29.6 on the partnership side, or even 37 if you're not eligible. But there's a concept called double taxation that exists with corporations. And that, you, that doesn't get a lot of publicity, but there, a corporation is taxed at 21% on income, but then when they distribute dividends to their shareholders, those shareholders have to pay a 20% tax rate on those dividends. So ultimately, if you look at a simple example of a million bucks coming in, you would pay 21% at the corporate level. So $210,000, you would pay another uh, 20% on the, seven, the remaining, remaining cash, so the 790000 that's coming out. Ultimately, you get to about a 39.8% tax rate on that cash. Right. And so if your business model is such to where you are entering into drilling programs and receiving tax losses and then selling your assets. The whole concept of holding in a partnership is that you have losses that can shield income individually, other income, at a 37%, at a max ordinary rate. And then when you sell those assets, the income is taxed at capital gains rate. So it's taxed at 20%. 
So you have a tax shield in the partnership structure at 37%, and then you're paying income tax at a 20% clip. Mm -hmm. So many investors do not like um, the corporate structure because you're essentially locked into a 40% clip. So that's one thing, the double taxation. Another thing is, is uh, it's difficult to take assets uh, or move assets in and out of a corporation. You can't take assets out of a corporation. Um, it, what, essentially what happens is if you distribute assets, it's what's called a deemed liquidation. And so you have to take the fair value of those assets less its tax basis. You have to pay ta phantom tax on that right away. So, and phantom tax is where you have a taxable event, but you have no cash, you've distributed property. So that's, that's something that is very common in the industry is on the partnership side, there's assets being distributed, contributed, that's allowed to be tax-free. On the corporate side, it's not allowed. So what I've recommended to um, the, individual, the, the businesses that, that I've talked to is if, if your business plan is to hold these assets for 10 plus years, and not distribute any cash, and you have a potential exit strategy where you could sell your stock of the C-Corp, that's great. Corporate structure actually makes a lot of sense. You can pay 21% tax over that 10 years. You have a time value money savings on the 37 you would have paid individually. And then when you sell, you're selling the stock, not the assets. So you're not subject to that double taxation when you sell stock. When you sell assets, and the cash is coming inside the corporation and then being distributed out, you actually do have a taxable dividend at that point and double taxation. So my recommendation is to consult your tax advisor. Don't do anything uh, without thinking about your situation and forecasting is huge. What does what your business look like over the next five to 10 years and what's your exit strategy? Right, so for someone that's looking ahead five years or so, is there something down the road that corporations and individuals should be aware of? Sure, um, nothing really on the horizon because this was the biggest, the largest tax reform bill since 1986. Yeah. So there's probably not going to be anything substantial to increase or, or sorry, decrease taxes further. What I would be worried about is is the expiration dates on a lot of these, and then the administration change. So you know we're now two and a half years into uh, President Trump's administration. If that goes away in a few years, and you have a Democratic president come in, there could be some changes to mm -hmm. this. And so I would be hesitant to say um, these changes will last forever. If you move from a partnership to a corporate structure, again, going back to that concept of it's hard to take assets out of a corporation. Once you go to a corporation, you can't go back without having that deemed liquidation happen. So if, you, if, if the tax rates change, let's say corporate tax rates go up here in you know, two to six years, then you could potentially be locked into having that corporate structure and paying potentially a higher tax rate if it goes back up. You mentioned the expiration. Uh, I thought on the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, there was a date from 2018 to 2027 or something. Yeah, so the 2025 is uh, a key date for a lot, of, a lot of these changes. Some of them have no expiration date, and those are the ones that I would be concerned about is if you look at the bill and you analyze which ones have expiration dates and which ones don't, then the ones that don't have expiration dates are kind of unspoken. Those are probably the ones that are most at risk. Um, but just because something has an expiration date 
doesn't mean that there could be something drastic done to that if there is an administration change. Sure. And I know I'm asking you to get kind of the crystal ball out because sure. you know, it's, it's hard to tell. Uh, for some of the things that are more concrete, uh, what are some of the, uh, the big tax reform changes that are having the biggest impact on the industry now? And I'm talking about uh, business interests and expensing and that sort of sure. thing. Sure. Uh, probably the, the largest change um, besides the tax rate and the 199A on the industry is the 100% expensing rule. And essentially, you know, the, the industry on the upstream side, I'm going to just cover upstream and midstream. Upstream has been very capital intensive, very friendly. So you're able to write off your what's referred to as intangible drilling costs. That hasn't changed. You can still write that off. There's some a concept called leasehold costs, which is acquiring leases. You can write that off through depletion cost and percentage. That hasn't changed. Good. Those two concepts have been challenged for years, they're still here. That's great. 100% expensing is tangible assets. And so that's your equipment on the well. Is that huge for upstream? It's, it's not huge, but it's more beneficial than it was. It was 50% before the law change. So now you can essentially write off all your tangible and intangible drilling costs, which is very attractive. And, and the reason it's attractive is that same concept of tax loss. You have a tax shield up front, you have capital gains in the back end. On the midstream side, it's kind of a game changer because, you know, on the midstream assets, the, the rule is you can expense tangible depreciable property that has a class year of 20 years or less, and midstream assets can range anywhere from 7 to 15 years. And so a midstream company, you're talking about deals anywhere from 50 to 2 or $3 billion dollars that taxpayers can now expense when, as they construct and place and service their assets. So you could have significant, significant tax deductions on the front end um, compared to old law where you could take 50, but the remainder had to be depreciated over 7 to 15 years. And you said 20-year class year. What does that mean? It, so on the tax side, every asset has a class life. And so the IRS basically, like this table, you know, they would say tables are five years, furniture and fixtures. Um, computers, buildings, anywhere from three years to 39 years. The IRS basically assigns a class life to every single asset. And so a lot of the assets, the key assets in the oil and gas space are anywhere from seven to 15 years. And that includes upstream too. There's very few things that are over 20 years in the space. So most of it's going to be beneficial. Are those estimates pretty accurate then for the actual life of these of this, of this equipment? Um, for the for an oil and gas well, uh, seven years is fairly accurate. But um, I would say all the uh, all the class lives are kind of throwing darts and kind of you know I mean right. putting you in a box. Yeah, tax definitely definitely doesn't have it figured out. Like you know, if you look at some gap stuff, those guys actually look at the logic of I think this asset is going to last. 10 years, so I'm going to depreciate over 10 years. Tax doesn't do that. They kind of assign in a box. So the 100% expensing is is huge, um, but it has to be monitored. And we'll talk about NOLs in, in a little while, but it's not as if, especially on the midstream side, you can't just flush everything down. You have to really kind of forecast because of the NOL limitations, and we can discuss that. The second one would be the business interest, and this this was really a trade-off for the depreciable asset, 100% expensing. 
business interest is now limited um, at the at the corporate or partnership level to the extent of 30% of your taxable your adjusted taxable income. And so what does that mean? It basically means your taxable income, you get to add back your DDNA, that's depreciation, depletion, and amortization. Mm-hmm. So in the oil and gas space, because you can add that back, it's probably not going to affect a lot of people because a lot of oil and gas companies are profitable before they take their, their DDNA. Mm-hmm. So this shouldn't affect a ton of oil and gas companies, but it will be a factor there. And so you don't lose it. It's just a timing difference. And a timing difference basically means you don't get it this year, but you can take it in future years. And so it's basically suspended until you have taxable income to support the deduction or until you dissolve the partnership and you can write it off in full. Okay. So that's going to be a, a huge um, a, a huge change here in a few years because in t- I believe it's 2022 that the DDNA add back actually expires. Does it? So after 2022, you basically have to take taxable income and your limit is 30% of your taxable income. Well, in the energy space, since a lot of it, you know, especially those that are in drilling programs or heavy midstream deals, there are tax losses up front, you could see a good, a good suspension of that deduction until you probably sell your assets. And that 2022, is that, uh, was that an existing or is that part of this? That's part of the reform. Okay. Yeah, that was tacked on to this. And it was, it was really a budgetary deal. I mean, a lot of the, the things that you see in this, in this bill are kind of odd on the surface, weird dates or weird tweaks. Yeah. And it was the last minute budgetary kind of, okay, we're going to do this 21% corporate tax rate, but I'm going to have to kind of, you know, peel back on some other things. Got it. Got it. Um, and then also big on the upstream side, there's a, an old deduction. It's called domestic production activity deduction, very similar to the 199A, but it was a 6% deduction for the upstream space. That's no longer around. 199A is obviously a better a better answer. And then the DPAD is what it's referred to. That required profitability too. So you're not in a, a worse position if if you weren't profitable. You couldn't take the DPAD or the 199A. All right. So with all of these kind of wide sweeping changes, what are some of the the tax reforms that maybe have slipped through the cracks a little bit or haven't been as noticed? Sure. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of things that aren't on the news that have been really impactful and will be impactful for the industry going forward. Number one is is the carried interest rules. And it was marketed, it was um, publicized as targeting hedge fund managers. So there's these crooked hedge fund managers you know, making a lot of money, paying capital gains rates. And so that was what the media kind of constructed this carried interest um, change. But the, the old rule is that if you're providing services for, for a company, you can receive units in that company. And then when the company sells their assets, typically they're going to hold it for more than one year and you would get capital gains rates for, for that, that um, income. Mm-hmm. So what kind of irritated, you know, people is that you're receiving those units in exchange for your services. So it's supposed to be deemed as compensation, but carried interest kind of provided a loophole for that. But now they've changed it from one to three years. And why is that significant for the industries? Because things change fast. A lot of companies are selling their their assets anywhere between 13 months and three years. And so if you're invested, if you have a carried interest in a fund that's investing in oil and gas assets, and you're selling those assets within three years, 
then instead of paying 20%, you're going to be paying 37% because what happens is it's recharacterized to a short-term capital gain. So it kind of goes against the whole concept of, of the carry and the one-year hold concept. That's a big one. Another one is, is the removal of technical terminations. Old law said that if you sold over 50% of your company, you had a cutoff tax year, you had to kind of start over with your business. That's gone away. Now, if you sell over 50% of your partnership, the business carries on as usual. So that's something, kind of a technical thing that's out there. The NOL limitations, that hasn't got a lot of publicity, but it's pretty significant. NOLs, old law, you could carry NOLs back two years and carry them forward 20 years. Now there's no carry back and you can carry them forward indefinitely. That's one thing, but you can't, if you're profitable in prior years and you have a loss in the current year, you can no, no longer carry that back to offset prior year income. And NOL stand for? Uh, net operating loss. Okay. So if my business has two great years and then the third year we suffer, we have a huge loss. Under old law, I could take that net operating loss, carry it back, amend my prior year tax returns and get a big refund. Mm -hmm. Now you can carry it forward. Number two on this is that it's limited. NOLs are now limited to 80% of your taxable income. So when you carry them forward, under old law, you could deduct in full. Under new law, there's a limitation for 80%. So the key thing here is just making sure, again, back to forecasting, if, you're think, if you think the right answer is to take the 100% expensing and take these large losses, and then maybe in future years, you're not doing, you're not doing a lot of capital build out, you could have a, a huge loss that could be limited in future tax years because of the 80% limitation. Right. So that's something to think about. Forecasting is, is definitely uh, more important there. And then the last thing is the partnership audit regs, and it kind of has all partnership practitioners just kind of shaking in their boots because old law, there was a concept called TEFRA to where the IRS would, could audit a partnership but they could not assess tax at the partnership level. They would have to go after the investors and assess tax and collect from all the partners, right? So for example, if you have an oil and gas fund, and most funds have anywhere from 10 to 150 partners, the IRS would say, is it administratively burdensome to go audit this partnership and then go after 100 investors and try to assess and collect tax? And it was almost impossible for them to achieve that, so they stayed away from partnerships. The law change in 18, the IRS now has the ability to go similar to a C-Corp, assess tax and collect tax from the partnership. And so because of the nature of the industry, there's, there is uh, a lot of risk of audit. Number one, because partnerships are now being equalized in the IRS's eyes, they're, they're gonna target more partnership audits. And number two, there's a lot of tax losses in the on in the oil and gas space and so if you're thinking about the combination of those two the irs may target the industry and say okay talk to me about all these losses and you know there there could be some some discussions you need to have with your tax advisor because there are some options to elect out if you're a small business there's also options to push out it, um, and push out would basically result in you pushing out the election to your partner group, they pay the tax, but that would require coordination among your amongst your partner groups to, to accommodate that. So those are really three that kind of slipped through the cracks. That the the one change that got the biggest emotional reaction, and those people were kind of throwing stones at me um, when I presented on this, was Mills Entertainment. And 
So now entertainment is a big part of, of the oil and gas space. And so entertainment is no longer deductible. At all. Entertainment, no. It, meals, uh, there was prior year meals um, that were related to entertainment were deductible at 50%. That has not changed. Meals that were on site, and they, they're calling this the uh, Trump, Google rule, or Amazon, how he's going after Bezos for this. But yeah. if you bring food into your cafeteria, then it was 100% deductible. That's now 50%. And then entertainment, if you're taking your clients golfing, if you're going hunting, anything to that extent, um, to a Mavs game, luxury suites, all of that is non-deductible. So um, minor change, but one that I got the most heat for and the most questions surrounding what constitutes entertainment. So I definitely recommend scrubbing internally to figure out what's entertainment and you know where your meals and entertainment are being booked on your financials. Right. So they're rightfully kind of shaking in their boots, literally. Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we've covered a lot of information here. Thank you for all your expertise. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the time.